Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 81, Romans Being Clever, Part 2. In Chapter 75, we looked at the engineering achievements of the Romans. In it, we mentioned the Romans had very little time for pure mathematics. They were much more interested in anything which helped further the ambitions of empire. This may indicate they would also not be over-keen on literature. This, though, isn't the case at all. Roman and Latin literature was groundbreaking and of very high quality, particularly during the golden age of the 200 years between 100 BC and 100 AD. One of the areas in which Roman writers excelled was in history. In this chapter, we'll have a brief peek at some of the most notable Roman writers and historians. So, let's take a look at the poets and dramatists first. Gaius Valerius Catullus was born about 87 BC into a leading equestrian family of Verona. His family was independently wealthy. He spent most of his years as a young adult in Rome, where he may have been acquainted with some of the prominent politicians of the day, including Cicero, Caesar and Pompey. It's said, though, that the highly prudish and moral Cicero apparently despised his poems and perceived them as amoral. Catullus was an Epicurean philosopher and was uninterested in politics and primarily concerned only with writing his poetry, and quite a lot of his writing survives. Of 116 poems known to us, 26 of them contain references to a woman called Lesbia. One can quite probably assume this was a real woman who Catullus was obsessed with. Some of his poems are completely obscene, hence Cicero's disgust. He did, though, show a sharp sense of humour and he quite often targeted his eye at that Lesbia's other lovers, as well as his rival poets. He developed some poetic techniques which are still used today. For example, he was very fond of alliteration, using the same consonant sound to begin several consecutive words. If you want to dabble in Catullus, try Let us live, my Lesbia, and let us love. Catullus was highly prolific, and died aged just 30 in 57 BC. The Augustan Age produced the finest Roman poets. We've already looked at some length at the works of Virgil and Ovid. Ovid took the great stories of Roman mythology and gave them his own particular feel. Ovid was another pro prolific Roman poet, straddling the golden and silver ages of Latin literature, who wrote about love, seduction and mythological transformation. He's traditionally ranked alongside Virgil and Horace as one of the three canonic poets of Latin literature. His poetry especially the epic poem Metamorphoses, was highly thought of and his influence can be seen in much later works such as those of Chaucer, Dante, Shakespeare and Milton. Like Catullus before him, Publius Avidius Naso was from a well-to-do equestrian family, expected to have a career in public life. Ovid, though, decided against really going for his career and travelled instead to Athens, Sicily and Asia Minor. He became a friend of his contemporary, Horace, and renounced all thoughts of working in the service of the empire to concentrate on his poetry. He was said to be emotional and impulsive, and this is reflected in his poetry. Like Catullus, some of his work is pretty lewd and cynical. Try the Amores. His most well-known work is, of course, the Metamorphoses. I used excerpts from these for chapter 52, Tales from Ovid. In 8 AD, however, the Emperor Augustus banished Ovid to the city of Thomas on the Black Sea, in modern-day Romania, for unknown political reasons. It's thought that Ovid was a little too close to the embarrassing behaviour of Augustus's daughter, Julia. 
Ovid himself describes the reason, somewhat mysteriously, as Carmen et Error, which translates as a poem and a mistake. It would be wonderful to find out what exactly he meant and what really went on. Given Julia's reputation, the imagination runs wild. Ovid was never recalled to Rome and died in the early years of Tiberius's reign. The poet Virgil, on the other hand, never put a foot wrong. Publius Virgilius Maro was born in 70 BC in the village of Andes near Mantua, in what was part of southern Gaul and now northern Italy. His family were probably less well off than those of Catullus or Ovid. He studied in what is now Milan and later moved to Rome to further his education in rhetoric, medicine and astronomy, although he soon started to focus more on philosophy. It's during this time he began to write poetry. Virgil fell on hard times after Julius Caesar was assassinated. For a while he lost possession of his family's estates, but managed to recover it through the interventions of important friends. In 38 BC he published the Bucolics. This was performed with great success on the Roman stage and Virgil was an overnight sensation. Many of his poems dramatised the effects of revolutionary change. He must have been saying the right things because in 27 BC he received the ultimate pat on the back. He was commissioned by the newly renamed Augustus to write an epic poem to glorify Rome and the Roman people. The result was the Aeneid. Virgil travelled to Asia Minor to look at some of the settings for his masterpiece. Unfortunately, he caught a fever, or possibly sunstroke, while in the town of Megara and died near Naples at the age of 51. Augustus ordered that it be published anyway, and the magnificent work I used to tell the story of Aeneas' flight from Troy was the result. Like a few other more recent examples, Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain and the like, Virgil died at the height of his fame. His death only made him more popular, and the Aeneid is considered to be the masterpiece of Roman literature. Quintus Horatius Flaccus, known as Horace in the English-speaking world, was born in 65 BC in southern Italy. He was even more lowly born, being the son of a freedman. He did, though, get a good education in Rome and then Athens. He joined the Roman army after Caesar's death. Horace returned to Italy in 39 BC, where he became a scribe and treasury official. This left him plenty of time to write poetry. He was good enough at his art to attract the attention of Virgil, and soon the patronage of Augustus. Horace's most admired works are the Carmina, or Odes, published in 23 BC and 13 BC. They are lyrical poems dealing with the subjects of friendship, love and the practice of poetry. He also wrote satires and a hymn, commissioned by Augustus for the secular games of 17 BC, called the Carmen Seculari. It's a homage to the gods, particularly Jupiter, Diana and Venus. Horace's poems give us some of the most famous coined Latin phrases that we use today. We have all heard carpe diem, seize the day, and nunc est bibendum, now we must drink. He also first used dulci e decorum est pro patria mori, it's sweet and fitting to die for one's country. This phrase was used as an anti-war statement by the First World War poet Wilfred Owen in one of his most famous poems. Horace died in Rome in 8 BC at the age of 57, leaving his estate to the Emperor Augustus. Lucius Aeneas Seneca, often simply known as Seneca or Seneca the Younger, to distinguish him from his father, who was also called Lucius Aeneas Seneca, was born in 4 BC in modern-day Cordoba in Spain. 
he moved to Rome when he was just a small boy and was trained in rhetoric and Stoic and Neo-Pythagorean philosophy. Seneca only narrowly avoided execution after a spat with the famously unforgiving Caligula. He also had more problems with the Emperor Claudius, who succeeded Caligula in 41 AD, and at the behest of Claudius's wife Messalina, Seneca was banished to the island of Corsica on a trumped-up charge of adultery. Claudius's second wife, Agrippina, however, had Seneca recalled to Rome in 49 to tutor her son, Nero, then 12 years old. Seneca was Nero's advisor between 54 and 62 and was one of the few people able to curb the headstrong young man's excesses. He amassed great wealth during his time but then fell out of favour. It is after 62 that he devoted his time to writing. Seneca is known for his philosophical essays and letters as well for eight tragedies dealing with mythological themes and a satire. The tragedies are usually considered to be adaptions of more ancient works by Greek dramatists but contain stoic themes. He was a bit of a latter-day Roman Polanski. His plays contain scenes of violence that were not present in the Greek originals. Don't get anywhere near his play Oedipus if you have a weak stomach. His masterpiece is considered to be the play Thyestes, one of the few not based on a Greek original. In 65, Seneca was caught up in the aftermath of the conspiracy of Gaius Calpurnius Piso to kill Nero, although it's unlikely he was involved in the actual plot. Nero, not known for his adherence to justice, ordered Seneca to kill himself. This he did, but he botched it rather, and his death was long and painful. The writers we've looked at so far are from the golden age of Roman literature. There's one more we should consider, though, whose writings are from a slightly later time. Decimus Junius Juvenalis, known to us as Juvenal, was born in Aquino, a small town in the Lazio region of Italy, probably the son of a freedman. He was born sometime around 55. Like Horace, he served in the army and became an officer. He failed to gain promotion under Domitian and then seems to have been exiled to Egypt, either by Domitian or Trajan. He may have been recalled to Rome, but actual details are contradictory and sketchy. Either way, he died sometime during the later years of the reign of Hadrian. Juvenal wrote very fine, very rhythmic and technical poetry. It's the subject matter, though, which is interesting to us. He wrote satires. Much of his work is open criticism of the corruption of Roman society and the general badness and brutality of man. Although he was not the inventor of satire, he is considered to be the greatest of Roman satirists. At the time, though, it seems he was not well known. It's only 200 years later that he is mentioned with reverence. Juvenal satires are, like the works of Horace, the source of many well-known phrases, including panem et circensis, bread and circuses, with the implication that these are all the common people are interested in, and keys custodiet ipsot custodies, who will guard the guardians, or who will watch the watchers. As with many of their engineering achievements, much of the style of Roman literature was quite often adapted from previous examples, most notably the Greeks. It's the same for history. The Romans, though, were very fond of historical writing, and they took this genre to new levels. There are too many Roman historians for us to consider even all of the great ones. Some, though, have been the originators of much of the story of the Romans which we've told so far, and a couple, who we have not met yet, will provide the base material for some of our later tales. The first known historian of the Golden Age of Literature is that man Julius Caesar himself. He wrote an account of the Gallic Wars. 
While this history is self-serving and meant to justify Caesar's actions, it's a reasonably accurate account of the actual events. Titus Livinius Patavinus, known to us as Livy, wrote a huge history of Rome and the Roman people. He knew the Julio-Claudians well and was from a clan close to that of Livia, Augustus's wife. His history starts from the foundation of Rome and ends with the death of Drusus in 9 BC. Only about 25% of it survives today. The first part of Livy's work can't really be considered as history. He begins with the foundation of the city by Aeneas, which is pure invention, although not invented by Livy himself. The first part of the work ends with the sack of Rome by the Gauls. Owing to his patronage by the ruling family, he emphasises the greatness of Rome and of the Caesars. It's probable that his work was unfinished. Livy died in 17 AD, early in the reign of Tiberius, having not completed the record of the life of Augustus. The two most famous Roman historians wrote at a similar time about the same time period. Publius Cornelius Tacitus, born in 56 AD, was a senator from an old aristocratic family who owed his position to the Flavians. Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus was born in 69 AD to an equestrian family. Tacitus wrote five major works. The two which have been most useful in our telling are the Annals and the Histories. These cover the times from the death of Augustus to the year of the four emperors, and from the year of the four emperors to the death of Domitian. Most of the histories has been lost, but quite a lot of the annals survives. Tacitus is known for his style, which is direct and factual. He gets to the point very quickly, and leaves the reader to fill in the gaps and context. Tacitus records the power politics and the friction between the emperors and the senate. He seems to be fascinated by how the imperial regime works, despite the fact he was born after the Republic fell. His accounts are generally thought to be balanced. He's happy to praise and criticise the same person for their actions, rather than vilify or laud a person for political reasons. His senatorial career was mostly during the time of Domitian, and his feelings about imperialism probably stemmed from his prominence at this difficult time. His factual accuracy has been questioned. Like most historians of the time, he probably embellished or added details when the sources were absent or unclear. The annals, particularly, are not written from primary sources, and so may be quite inaccurate. Tacitus is, though, generally considered to be the greatest Roman historian. His style and commitment to accuracy are truly impressive. Suetonius is famous for his work, The Twelve Caesars. It's a history of the Roman leaders from Julius Caesar to Domitian. The life of each man is told to a set pattern, describing his appearance and family history, and then some quotes. After this, an account of the reign is given. The Twelve Caesars is undeniably entertaining, but it, its accuracy has been called into question. Suetonius tended to side with the Senate rather than the Emperor. He didn't have access to the official records, and a lot of his account relies on secondary and somewhat dubious sources. Suetonius himself was partial to gossip and salaciousness, he enjoyed a good tale as much as actual history. His biographies are as amusing as they are informative. Despite this, his major work is used as one of the primary sources for the history of the period. He wrote a number of other books, including a biography of Virgil and one of Horace. He wrote about the Roman year and about Roman festivals. Most of these other works are now completely lost. Suetonius continued to serve the emperors under Nerva and Trajan latterly as director of the imperial archives, but he was dismissed from his post by Hadrian after the historian had an affair with the emperor's wife. Suetonius eventually died in 122.
Much of the period we've recently looked at in our story, that of the Severans, was recorded by Cassius Dio. Dio was the son of Cassius Apronianus, governor of Cilicia and Dalmatia. He came to Rome at the age of 16, in the early years of the reign of Commodus. Dio became a member of the Roman Senate under Commodus's rule. During the brief reign of Pertinax, he was nominated to a praetorship, which he held the following year after the accession of Septimius Severus. In 205, Dio's rise to the top culminated in a consulship. He remained prominent throughout the Severan period, and during the reign of Alexander Severus, he was governor of Africa, Dalmatia and Upper Pannonia. In 229, he became consul again, as the colleague of the emperor himself. As we've heard, though, he was forced out and left Rome and the service of the emperor. Dio returned to Bithynia, where he wrote, in Greek, a Roman history in 80 books, covering the period from the founding of the city to AD 229. His is the only surviving account of the invasion of Britain by Claudius. Dio's history took him 10 years to prepare and 12 more to write. From 180 onward, much of his history is compiled directly from eyewitness accounts, his own and those of his colleagues. His style is informative. He followed the annalistic order of history, so popular among the Romans, according to which all the events of a given year, in whatever the part of the world they occurred, were grouped together. He is very careful to specify, to a day, the exact duration of each emperor's reign, and tries to be precise with some other details. In spite of this, though, the value of his history is somewhat doubtful. Although he tried to record the happenings, he's vague and gives an impressionistic picture of events, in which the things historians really want are missing, including dates and geographical details. Dio's not often consulted when historians look at the early imperial period, but his record of the Severan times is a better, more contemporary one. He was pretty much ignored by historians who came after him, but the scholars of the later empire, which we now call the Byzantine Empire, relied on him much more. The last historian we'll briefly mention in this chapter recorded events which we have not yet described in our story. Ammianus Marcellinus was a soldier in the 4th century. He was born in the Greek-speaking part of the empire sometime around 325. Ammianus wrote a history of Rome from the accession of Nerva in 96 to AD 378. The only part that survives is the very last section, which covers 353 to 378. It is his record that will help us tell the tale of the dreadful Battle of Adrianople. But that is for a much later chapter. Now we must return to Maximine Thrax and the beginning of the crisis of the 3rd century. And in a couple of weeks, that's exactly what we'll do. So, until then, have a great couple of weeks and I'll speak to you next time.